from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. We're on the road from the 2023 Commodity Classic in sunny Orlando, Florida this week. And here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Mexico's plan to ban GMO corn sparked reaction from both sides of the border. Policy priorities took center stage at Commodity Classic this week. Number one, we would love for the administration to begin talking about uh, trade agreements that involve market access tariffs. From farm bill to trade, we sat down with all four CEOs to uncover the biggest issues this year. USDA's March report showed some surprises for soybeans and corn production in Argentina, but what was the adjustment to corn that the markets didn't like? And in John's world. Chat, GPT, and farmers. Now for the news. Grain farmers have new numbers to digest, with USDA releasing its latest supply and demand report. We begin with the current stocks, with USDA cutting exports for corn by 75 million bushels, raising ending stocks by the same amount to 1.34 billion, which was a little higher than the trade expected. And for soybeans, a different story. With higher exports and lower crush, cutting into the ending stocks, that if realized, would put them at the lowest level in seven years at 210 million. And that was lower than the trade called for. And wheat, those numbers are unchanged. But the bigger story in this month's report may be the South American crop production numbers with USDA making big cuts to corn and soybeans in Argentina with parts of the country in drought. USDA did make some changes to Brazil's crop, but it also cut another 7 million metric tons from Argentina's corn crop, an area that has been hammered by dry weather, and it cut 8 million metric tons from its bean crop. Well, policy is a key focus of this year's Commodity Classic and the future Farm Bill. And now we're getting a new look at what the roadmap on Capitol Hill may be for the House Ag Committee. Farm Journal Washington analyst Jim Wiesmeyer getting a look at the 2024 budget letter. And key for farmers, it has an emphasis on production agriculture. The focus of the 2023 Farm Bill saying with the spike in the cost of goods, especially inputs, a strong Farm Bill safety net is what's needed. The budget letter speaking to the importance of funding for that safety net, but says due to the ineffectiveness of the existing farm bill safety net programs, Congress has returned to the cycle of providing unbudgeted ad hoc assistance, both for weather and market related disasters. Well, the government is proposing a new rule when it comes to the meat labeled as product of the USA. USDA says under the new requirements, the labels would be allowed on meat, poultry or eggs only if they come from animals born, raised, slaughtered and processed in the United States. The current policy allows for the voluntary use of the label on products from animals that are raised elsewhere and then shipped here for processing. It's reported imported beef accounts for about 12% of the total consumed in the US. The new proposed rule would also be voluntary. Reaction to the proposal really so far has been mixed with support coming from consumer advocates in the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, which had petitioned USDA's Food Safety and Inspection Service in 2019 over the rule. But the National Cattlemen's Beef Association says, quote, simply adding born, raised and harvested requirements to an already broken label will fail to deliver additional value to cattle producers and it will undercut true voluntary market driven labels that benefit cattle producers. And USDA continues to be focused on its competition in agriculture. It says several federal agencies are working together on seed competition in the seed industry, saying in a release more than three quarters of corn and soybean seeds are sold 
by only four companies. It's now joining the Patent and Trademark Office, the Department of Justice, and the Federal Trade Commission to start wor a working group on intellectual property and competition in the seed and ag input sector. USDA says it's also creating a farmer seed liaison to deliver on recommendations from a recent report. A new farmer survey shows farmer sentiments have dipped. The new Purdue University CME Group Ag Economy Barometer coming in with a reading of 125 in February. That's down five points from the previous month. We continue to ask producers about their biggest concerns for their farming operation in the upcoming year. And higher input cost remains the number one concern among producers, chosen by 38% of the respondents in this month's survey. However, more producers are telling us that they're worried about lower output prices and higher interest rates while fewer producers are worried about input availability. Producers' expectation for their farm's financial performance this year compared to last also weakened. All right, that's it for the news. Well, are we starting to see hints of El Nino? We'll have a check of weather when we come back. U.S. Farm Report on the road at the 2023 Commodity Classic is brought to you by GHX. The next way to buy seed is here. Discover the difference at ghxseed.com. By Double Team Sorghum Cropping Solutions, bringing farmers cleaner fields and bigger yields. And by your soy checkoff. Soybean farmers across the U.S. are making big gains through investments funded by the Soy Checkoff. Find out more by visiting unitedsoybean.org. Well, NOAA has officially declared an end to three years of the La Nina weather pattern, with one climate scientist now saying the globe is in what's being considered a neutral condition and probably trending to an El Nino in late summer or fall. Meteorologist Chuck Kiever joining us now. El Nino usually means more moisture, Chuck, and we're certainly seeing that in the far west. Yeah, we're going into a neutral pattern, but I just want to show you what La Nina dealt with. And that basically is when the trade winds had pushed the warmer surface water off to the west, the colder water upwells. And when the colder water does that and the surface warmer water is off to the west, it shifts the pattern up to the north. Well, with the neutral pattern, we should see more average situations where we will actually get precipitation along the entire coast. We're still looking at the drought monitor in the center part of the country all the way down the spine of the United States is very dry, but in general, most of the country, especially on the east side, is doing pretty well in terms of drought. And of course, California is just moist right now with all that precipitation coming in. And then, of course, you're going to have that snow melt. So they are going to see an interesting situation out there when all of that snow melts because there's going to be a lot of runoff from that. The jet stream on Sunday shows a total zonal pattern in place, but you'd see these cold lobes of air that will come down from Canada throughout the week and you're going to see this big dip out to the west with this trough, and that's going to bring a lot colder air up to the northwest part of the country. That works its way across the country Friday and into Saturday, so that cold air eventually is going to work its way to the east coast. Below normal in terms of temperatures up to the north and west and above normal down in Florida. Here's precipitation above normal for most of the country, a little bit drier uh, below normal in the northeast. Here's precipitation forecast for the next 10 
10 days. And of course, here's the area of concern out to the west coast. We're going to see a lot more precipitation there and then off to the east as well with a couple frontal boundaries. We'll see some thunderstorms. Here's the snowfall estimates as well for this week. You can see along the frontal boundaries that will slide through here. Those troughs. We're actually going to see some snow pile up there as well. So winter is not over yet, folks. So Monday again, there's that precipitation coming through the Great Lakes and that's going to lay down some rain and snowfall on Wednesday. We're going to see. Yep, more precipitation in the center part and then down into the southeast and on Friday. Yes, folks, more precipitation for the middle part of the country and along the southeast as well. That's it for your forecast. We're going to toss it back to time. Thanks, Chuck. Well, weather moving soybean prices this week, but what caused the meltdown in the corn market to continue? We have our live taping from here at Commodity Classic. Arlen Suderman, Chip Nellinger, and Mike North join us next. U.S. Farm Report is sponsored by Germinator Closing Wheels. Germinator Steel Closing Wheels, perfected in conventional, excels in no-till. Order 12 to 16 rows today and qualify for free shipping or 20% off an end zone moisture management package. Well, welcome back to U.S. Farm Report, our live taping here at Commodity Classic. Such a great crowd. Thank you all for joining us. Our panelists this weekend, Arlen Suderman, Chip Nellinger, as well as, as Mike North. Arlen, big USDA report this week. I mean, we're waiting on this acreage report, but when you look at what happened, you know, with, with soybean prices, we saw a cut to South America's crop, but I thought the market was getting exhausted by Argentina. So what, is, what, what was fueling soybeans this week? Well, it has been Argentina, and whenever we have a drought in Argentina, the funds love to buy soy meal, love to buy soybeans, and uh, they're doing so again this year, at least we're doing so until the report. Uh, and, and they even held in the report as well. We got more bullish news overnight after the report, so within 24 hours we had a, a real stack of uh, bullish news from the Argentina front as the crops keep getting smaller there. But we had trouble really sustaining that level. We're at levels now where the market's trying to ration demand and it's starting to question, is that necessary with the big crop in Brazil? Because they have plenty of soybeans in Brazil. The increase in production in Brazil is basically equal to, almost equal to what we shipped to China all of last year. That's just the increase. Uh, so South America as a whole is, is in great shape. It's just the logistics of getting them to the crushing plants and where they're at. Uh, but also, we had a lot of headwinds from the outside markets and inflation, recession worries and everything, and that eventually caught up to the markets uh, and, and created problems in soybeans trying to hold on to those gains. Well, talking about problems, I mean, you look at this corn market. Chip, what is causing this meltdown that's going on in the corn market right now? Yeah, I think it's two things. I, I think to add on to what Arlen said, you know, the, the markets were, uh, were okay until earlier this week when uh, Federal Reserve Chairman Powell uh, spoke and, and really was hawkish on, hey, we have to keep these rates high for a long time, maybe higher than what uh, everyone thought initially. That seemed to let a lot of wind out of the, uh, you know, s different commodity markets. So I think that didn't help. And the wheat market is just imploding and corn's unfortunately right now tied to the hip of the wheat market. I think wheat is getting closer to a fair value here. And once it does bottom, I think that'll take some pressure off of the corn market. Before we move on to wheat, though, when you look at, at the corn market and you look at some of the, the outside markets, do we even know what fund positions 
are today? And does that have anything to do with, with this market action? So the answer is yes and no. Bottom line is we don't absolutely know because we haven't had a commitment to traders report for quite a few weeks. And so we're only guessing. And on a daily basis, most of the people that track the inside trade of what's going on can give you a rough estimate of what the funds have done. But that's it. It's, it's, it's completely a you know, finger in the air guess on what's going on. And that's, and that's where we stand. Is the market at all concerned about, about, about corn demand and, and, and how far we are off oh, from, from, the, from the level? There's no question we are concerned about corn demand, and that got underscored in that USDA report when they cut exports again, which they took a pass on in February. They needed to. A 75 million bushel cut um, was in line with what we would expect given the path that we're on with exports. And you, you, you start looking at the fact that we've lost 50 million birds due to avian flu. You look at a small beef herd, you talk about the potential recession that's out in front of us and any retraction in consumer demand on fuel will spark even more interest on the ethanol side. And, and so, you, yeah, we're definitely concerned about demand. Arlen, we saw an increase in winter wheat acres. But when you look at some of those areas that, that are hurting with production, hurting with drought, you know, what are we actually going to see with, with harvested acres? But at the same time, we have the situation and the uncertainty still with Ukraine and, and Russia and that grain deal. But you look at last year, we still had record wheat exports out of those, out of those areas. So what is it going to take to really put a, put a, put a floor in and, and, and support this, this wheat market? Well, first of all, the wheat market's a totally different animal than a lot of the others. Uh, if you look at soybeans, for example, virtually every bushel produced in the world is traded on the derivatives market at some point before it's consumed. Wheat, only a fraction of the bushels are traded on the derivatives market. Most of the world's wheat is traded on the cash market. So we get a lot of disconnect a lot of times between the supply and demand fundamentals and what the market's doing. We've totally removed the war premium. Uh, and the risks today are greater than what they were a year ago. Uh, we've got drought here. We've got climatologists talking about heat and, and uh, drought problems, perhaps in the Black Sea region as we get into the grain field period. Australia is moving into a dry period now uh, with El, moving to El Nino. There's a lot of reasons to rally the market if and when it starts to focus on it. I anticipate that'll come at some point here in the next two to three months. All right, well, we need to take a, t talk about acreage, but we do need to take a break. So, Chip, we're going to ask about that, that when we come back. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back right here on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Brandt, technology-driven nutrition that feeds your crop. Well, the trade show at Commodity Classic featured some of the latest and future equipment technology, including artificial intelligence. But what's the use for AI even beyond tractors, sprayers, and other key pieces on machines out on your farm? That's John's world this weekend. Farmers are starting to ask what artificial intelligence chatbots like ChatGPT can do for them. As a language model, ChatGPT can provide valuable assistance to farmers in various ways. Here are some examples. Providing weather forecasts. Farmers need to know the weather forecast to plan their planting and harvesting activities. ChatGPT can provide accurate predictions based on data from meteorological agencies. Farmers can interact with ChatGPT through messaging platforms 
or voice assistants to receive weather forecasts for their specific location. Identifying pests and diseases. ChatGPT can help farmers identify pests and diseases affecting their crops. Farmers can describe the symptoms they observe on their crops, and ChatGPT can provide recommendations on how to treat or prevent the problem. This can help farmers reduce crop losses and improve their yields. Recommending crop varieties. ChatGPT can provide recommendations on the best crop varieties to grow based on factors such as soil type, climate, and market demand. Farmers can provide information about their farm, and ChatGPT can suggest crop varieties that are likely to perform well in their area. Providing market information. ChatGPT can provide farmers with up-to-date market information, such as prices and demand for different crops. This can help farmers make informed decisions about what to plant and when to harvest to get the best prices. Offering agricultural advice. ChatGPT can offer agricultural advice on a wide range of topics, such as irrigation, fertilization, and crop rotation. Farmers can ask questions and receive personalized advice based on their specific situation. Assisting with record keeping. ChatGPT can help farmers keep track of their expenses, yields, and other important information. This can help farmers make informed decisions about their operations and improve their profitability. Connecting farmers with experts. ChatGPT can connect farmers with agricultural experts, such as agronomists and extension agents. Farmers can ask questions and receive advice from these experts through messaging platforms or voice assistants. Overall, ChatGPT can be a valuable tool for farmers by providing them with information, advice, and support. By leveraging the power of artificial intelligence and natural language processing, ChatGPT can help farmers improve their yields, reduce losses, and increase profitability. Thanks, John. Well, we're taking tractor tails to a whole nother level this weekend. A Lamborghini from the Show Me State that's in tractor tails right after the break. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Pioneer. Looking for the next big yield breakthrough? Then look to Pioneer. By combining industry-leading R&D with rigorous local testing, what's next happens here at Pioneer. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. Join me as we visit Missouri this week to learn about a Lamborghini 904. We bought uh, three of these that we farmed with. They're uh, very economical. They're an air-cooled engine, and they was made by Ferdinand Ferrari. I was looking for a, a farm tractor, and the John Deere was gonna cost about twice what these Lamborghinis cost, so we bought a Lamborghini tractor. They have the front wheel assist, and uh, they were ahead of their time, really. So that's, that's why we bought a Lamborghini tractor. And then we got one, and then we bought another one, and another one, and, and, uh, and, and we farmed with them. And they're very economical on fuel. These are work tractors, and uh, now we've, we've got them in our museum buildings, all but uh, three of them, and one of them we're restoring right now. And uh, they, uh, we used them to work, and we pulled a silage chopper with them, 
We pulled a blower and we pulled a disc and plowed with them. We did everything with them. They were uh, probably our favorite tractor to farm with. We have uh, large uh, tractor clubs come from all over the country and uh, they have never seen one. And they uh, all are very interested in them and they want to hear them run and see us drive them and everything. And, and, but they haven't ever seen one. And they know about the Lamborghini cars, but they don't know about the tractors. Now that was a cool tractor. All right, when we come back, we sat down with all four commodity CEOs to see not only what are the priorities of the farm bill, but also what are the key topics and issues that farmers are talking about this weekend. We will do that right after the break. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, Commodity Classic drew record attendance this week. And while the trade show floor was buzzing, the main focus for commodity groups is to set policy priorities for the year. It's no surprise this year's focus was around the farm bill, but it didn't stop there. So this weekend, we sat down with all four commodity CEOs to uncover the biggest issues this year. Commodity Classic was buzzing with record attendance this week. But just before farmers and industry leaders landed here in Orlando, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office announcing the next chapter in Mexico's plan to ban GMO corn. The USDR issuing a request for formal consultations with Mexico under the USMCA agreement. We've said all along, if Mexico wants non-GM corn, pay for it, and, and the markets will respond uh, accordingly. But violating uh, a trade agreement is, is, is the wrong way to go about you know, meeting that demand if, if that's truly there. For the past two years, trade has not been a key priority for the Biden administration, something groups at Commodity Classic would like to see change. So far, just said that they want to address the sanitary and phytosanitary some of the technical rules. So we're supportive of that, but really what we need is market access. A year ago at Commodity Classic, the main issue was Russia's recent invasion on Ukraine and fears of possible wheat shortages. We do still have the ability to feed the world. We have plenty of wheat in the world. It's whether it's really what it comes down to is how do we get the wheat to the countries that can afford it at their cost. NOG CEO Chandler Gould says some countries buy wheat for calories while others can pay for quality. And high wheat prices around the globe last year did spur shuffling of overall demand. That said, we have the Emerson Trust Fund, we have the World Food Program, we've got many other humanitarian USAID programs that help us get our wheat into those markets so that we can help back, you know, backstop that supply. At home, drought in the West ate into last year's wheat crop. And as farmers in the plains continue to battle those extremes, it's taking a toll on more than just wheat. We go back to 2022, um, the worst sorghum yield since 1960. With a smaller sorghum crop to export, demand also took a hit, especially to China, a top destination for the crop. Uh, but our crop was down tremendously. So um, 
you know, we exported more sorghum and 21 than we grew in 22. Growers in those hard hit areas say phase two of USDA's ad hoc disaster program was a step back from the relief they saw with phase one. That's why disaster aid within a farm bill is a priority for sorghum this year. Whether that is a disaster uh, assistance, whether that's an increase in reference price, there's there's three or four different ways that you could provide that safety net. Wheat growers are also discussing the disaster aid piece of a farm bill this week. And that's something we're going to have to debate at Commodity Classic. Um, as we saw the baseline come out in the CBO score, right now there's less money for Title I, uh, meaning that we're going to have to figure out how to divide that pie even thinner. And while growers debated this week whether it's a permanent disaster program or a continued push for ad hoc payments each year, the National Sorghum Producers CEO thinks there are ways to create a better safety net without taking money away from crop insurance. There are ways with without spending the total amount of dollars that we have spent over the last six years that we could do some things in Title I to really uh, provide some extra dollars there to provide a safety net uh, to get us out of this situation of, of an every year disaster. For Corn and Soybean Association, the message is clear. They want to see Congress protect funding for crop insurance in the farm bill. Um, obviously, the you know crop insurance is is the biggie, uh, but we also think that um, that you know foreign market development and market access programs those are smart investments for our government to make that will allow us to uh, send our our U.S. corn uh, to places that that need it and want it. Both NCGA and ASA say additional investments in those programs would allow the U.S. to go on the offense to find new markets for both corn and soy. Their funding hasn't improved for over 20 years. And it's been chipped away by inflation and uh, sequestration and other things. And so that's that's also a priority. As commodity groups work to protect priorities in the farm bill, they're also not losing sight of ethanol, biodiesel and other renewable fuels, especially since ASA says EPA's latest RFS proposal misses the mark. It basically flatlines our industry over the next several years. It doesn't take into account the significant growth that's happening in the soybean crush sector, and that's driven by the demand that, that we had thought was out there for renewable diesel and biodiesel. And we have, unfortunately, um, EPA proposing to pull the rug out from under that investment. For corn growers, they're looking at RFS and beyond, placing a growing effort on the next Gen Fuels Act. We are optimistic that bills will be introduced in both the House and the Senate soon that will get that process moving. Um, that is a, a bill that effectively establishes a, an octane standard. Kasky says the bill promotes low carbon, high octane fuels. When it gets down to, to actual bushels, you know, some projections uh, have that, you know, it's like that can create an additional 1.8 billion bushels in new corn demand. And so you can see why that is a, a real high priority of ours. Well, there's another challenge USDA initiated last year. Dig up some unique and never tried before collaborations to partner with for USDA's Climate Smart Commodities grant. And that's exactly what commodity groups did, including national sorghum producers that received a very large possible grant that they say they will be able to do field trials and find other uses and sustainable uses for sorghum. All right, we need to take a quick break and then we have round two of our marketing discussion. That happens in just two minutes. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by DeKalb Asgrow Brands, official sponsors of success. However you measure success, we hope you find it this season.
Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report here from Commodity Classic. We talked about wheat. That's how, what we ended with in our, in our last segment. Okay, so let's talk about acreage just a couple uh, weeks away from this acreage report. Now seeing what the price movement that, that we've had, what do you think the trade is expecting when it comes to acres this year? Well, I think they're expecting uh, big corn uh, acreage, and I think that's one of the things that's weighing on the corn market as well as the pressure that we've seen in the wheat market. Yeah, it seems to me the market's getting more comfortable with 92 to 94 million acres of corn. Um, whether we get that or not, I I'm not so sure. You know, there's a lot of moving parts to that. Corn's had a big break. That isn't really stimulating, uh, you know, a lot of interest in planting extra acres. And the south, where we could see some swing acres, has been a little bit wet and expected to be wet clear into uh, the end of March here. So, you know, Mother Nature's going to have the final say, but I, I think the corn market's expecting a large number. Do you think we're losing it in cotton acres, Chip, in some of those areas that, where they are so dry and, and, and looking at, at sorghum and some of these other, other crops as a potential right now? Yeah, there was a, a, an estimate out here a few weeks ago by the, uh, uh, the Cotton Council and uh, expected to be a million, million and a half less acres of cotton uh, planted this spring. All right, so when, when you think about that and you think a, a, about what the trade is expecting at this, this, this point, what type of fireworks could we possibly see after this prospective plantings report comes out at the end of the month, Mike? Well, in the last several years, it hasn't been uncommon to see the market begin a nice rally on the backside of a plantings report. But as we've talked about, the acres seem to be kind of in the works. If you go back to last fall, they called 92. This uh, uh, egg outlook form pegged it at about 91. And so when you, when you look at where the mindset is, we expect to see that come into play. And as you look at the demand, which has been somewhat cannibalized by the higher prices over the course of the last couple of years, um, we're not looking for as big of a push on price as we come out of the backside. And so I think there's a lot of people that are hoping for that rally, but the fireworks could be that release of hope back into the market, which could cause more pressure back to prices in early April. Arlo, when you look at these cattle prices, I mean, my goodness, the bull run that we've seen, new contract highs. I mean, Arlen, ha it, has this market risen faster than you expected? And does that change your outlook for, you know, the thought that we could see cattle prices possibly top out at that, that Q4 time frame? Yeah, we saw the supply start to tighten a little bit quicker than what we expected here in the first quarter coming out of the Christmas break. The numbers of cattle, weather was a part of that as well with some of the winter storms taking some weight off of cattle. Means we had to hold back some cattle. Uh, the carcass weights dropped off. So the overall beef production dropped faster than what was anticipated, tightening things up. Now we've adjusted a little bit to that. I anticipate there will be some corrections. But the longer term trend is still to continue tighten things up. The main question going forward is going to be how healthy is the economy going to be? What's the confidence of the consumer going to be? How much is the consumer going to be willing to pay? Because the supplies are going to be tight. And once we really start turning this cow herd around and start holding back the heifers, we're going to tighten it up even more. Chip, any signs that we are see, seeing demand wane? Well, we've had a, a pretty poor export sales report the last two weeks uh, in, in the beef. And, and so that's a concern. We can see some volatility in those reports. Uh, a one week uh, poor performance, uh, you know, is acceptable. Now two in a row. In fact, I think it was a, a, the lowest number we've seen in over a year. And uh, that's a little bit concerning because prices have risen. And, and that is a definite concern, not only domestically, like Arlen said, with the consumer here, but if our exports are slowing, that could be the first sign of demand rationing.
Mike, real quick, what is your forecast for milk prices? We saw those DMC uh, payments that those triggered for the first time this year. What is your outlook for, for milk? It stacks up on what we've been talking about across the, you know, the cattle space. If you look at uh, some of the most recent inventory numbers around things like mozzarella, for example, we've watched as mozzarella inventories have increased, which is generally a very quick look inside of how people are ordering food into the home. We depend on people to go out yeah. to eat to move a lot of extra dairy solids. Mike, Chip, Arlen, thank you so much for joining us. I know it was a hard decision when I asked you to travel down to Orlando for Commodity Classic, but I appreciate you guys sacrificing and, and making that trip. Thank you, guys. All right, we need to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with much more with U.S. Farm Report here from Commodity Classic. Get in the game and be part of the 2023 Bracket Busters Challenge presented by Case IH. It's Farmer versus Farmer for a chance to win the $1,000 top prize. Go to agweb.com to fill out your bracket once teams are selected on Sunday, March 12th. The American Soybean Association's Conservation Legacy Awards are brought to you by Bayer. Bayer is committed to delivering better solutions for farmers while enabling them to operate more sustainably. Bayer, science for a better life. Each year during Commodity Classic, the American Soybean Association recognizes outstanding environmental and conservation achievements. Four regional conservation legacy award winners are selected ahead of Classic with the overall winner announced during the event. This year's winner has made it his mission to make a difference and for him, that all starts with the soil. When it comes to conservation, Ohio producers Les and Jerry Seiler were early innovators and have been no-tilling 100% of their 1,680-acre farm since 1986. This whole thing is improving our soil, trying to keep the, the soil in place, um, being able to absorb water and keep it healthy. Along the way, they also diversified their corn-soybean rotation, adding alfalfa and wheat. And in 2008, they started planting wheat and row crops into growing cover crops. Now we uh, intercede uh, corn acres after Labor Day with an airplane. In our soybean acres, we uh, drive through with a high boy seeder. Seiler says they're seeing better weed control with their cover crops and the increased microbial activity in their soils has also lowered nutrient inputs. It gives us the ability to cut back on our commercial fertilizers in this particular field here. We just harvested our eighth corn crop with zero phosphorus at planting time. These environmental stewards also farm in the western Lake Erie Basin, where agriculture is the main source of nutrient runoff. They've partnered with The Ohio State University to measure the phosphorus from their farm so they can adapt practices to reach their goal of zero nutrient runoff. We are monitoring the water that flows through the drainage outlet here to uh, figure out how much phosphorus we are losing off this land. They've also developed nearly 20 acres of grass waterways and in 2014 built this two-stage ditch. Let's, for instance, say it was running 10 mile an hour. By the time it gets up here on a high flow situation, it may slow down to, I don't know, three or five mile an hour. Over the last 40 years, the Siler's approach to conservation has nearly eliminated both wind and water erosion and improved water infiltration. 
being able to absorb more water on the land where it falls. That, that's the whole thing about soil health and uh, our aggregate stability. Plus, Siler says healthier, more alive soils build organic matter and increase the resiliency of their crops, which translates into yield. Congratulations to the Siler family, a 2023 regional winner of the American Soybean Association's Conservation Legacy Award. Again, congratulations to Les and his entire family as ASA's Conservation Legacy Award winner. Well, when we come back, the growing use of artificial intelligence in agriculture, a surprising turn of events happens in customer support next. Is it real or is it AI? Welcome back. Well, John talked about the impacts of AI on the farm in John's world, but in customer support, there's a new twist. JP from Central Illinois is curious about how AI might impact farmers. The explosions of advances in AI are all the rage. What are some possible outcomes for farmers by increased use of these tools? That's a great question, JP, and so I'm going to send myself a mug. Yeah, that's my question. This morning in John's World, I talked about artificial intelligence, only it wasn't really me. Other than the first sentence, the entire script was written by the most popular AI chatbot, ChatGBT, after I asked it to explain that topic. I just read it. It seemed plausible to me and indistinguishable from routine human writing, maybe better than my own. One big issue showing up with AI chatbots and search engines, though, is called alignment. If you don't detail the de desired results correctly, chatbots will just say and do whatever it takes to achieve the specified goal. Logic and truth can be the first casualties. Bluntly put, AI makes up stuff. For what it's worth, here are the pluses and minuses I see for farmers as AI tools proliferate and improve rapidly. First, on the positive side, search engines will be more intuitive and easier. Think autocorrect on steroids. Management of complex systems like supply chains will improve as AI is better able to forecast what, it, what needs to be where, when. Other forecasts will too. Farm machinery will require less operator training and attention. Current AI research in other industries, like construction, will hasten the arrival of truly autonomous combines, tractors, and more. Medical diagnoses will be faster and more accurate as AIs take over reading scans and evaluating tests and symptoms. Now, a few troubling developments. I mentioned the truth problem. Colleges are already flummoxed by chatbot-generated papers and rampant cheating. Recruiters, salespeople, lawyers, executives, and many other seemingly safe occupations won't be. There will be less human interaction in commerce, which could be a leveling influence. AI doesn't care if you're charming or not. We will encounter more black boxes. Those are tools are so that are so complex, we can only use them without understanding them. Although Wall Street firms investing massively in AI are only hinting about it, markets of all kinds will be influenced, perhaps dominated by AI trading. That includes commodities, I think. This may be a plus or a minus for ag. This list will only grow and change. AI is here and is being used more than you think. 
because being indetectable is the goal. Okay, are you amazed? As I am right now at John's World and that entire thing was written by using a popular AI chatbot. It's scary and impressive. Honestly, I don't know what to think. All right, grass made from soybeans. I'm telling you, what we saw at Commodity Classic this week is going to blow your mind. Just wait, that story's next. Closed captioning on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by BASF. BASF, helping you to do the biggest job on earth. Well, just in the roundtables, we were talking about export demand. And for soybeans, that demand is huge. I mean, we're talking over 50% of the U.S. soybeans that are grown is actually exported overseas. But what is being done to also grow that demand here at home? Well, to find that answer, you need to look everywhere from the Las Vegas Strip to Central Park. You've heard of soybeans used for roads and tires, soybeans even used to make these Skechers shoes. But now you can find a growing demand for soybeans right under your feet. Check this out. USB partnered with Sinlon to create this artificial turf made from soybeans. It was on display at Commodity Classic this week, but you can also find it on the Las Vegas Strip, the San Diego Zoo, and Central Park year-round. We have Sinlon here today, which is a soy-based turf and um, it's really exciting and I hope you walk on it in between uh, our different soy booths here today. Sinlon is looking to grow the market even more with plans to find a home for the turf in professional sports stadiums around the globe. I walked on it. I'm telling you, it is impressive. All right, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend from Commodity Classic. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to tune in next weekend as we head back to the studio in a colder climate to work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.